I have to start today by bragging. I got a superlative in middle school. That superlative was the biggest gossip. I know what you're saying. Why would anybody brag about that? Well, I will say to my defense that a group of guys I was fighting with at the time, as is the case often in middle school, started a campaign to impugn me by electing me to such a prestigious honor. But the truth was, at that stage of life, I was so lost and so careless with my words and so needy of attention that I can confirm that I probably deserved it. I confess this embarrassing moment, and I have to be honest, 30-something years later, it's still something that I'm embarrassed by. I'm like, I got elected biggest gossip in my middle school for a guy. There was a girl winner, too. And, and I think to myself, I wish I could do middle school over again. I can't be the only person who's ever felt like, gosh, I wish I could do middle school over again. But it's that way. I confess it for really three reasons this morning. The first is it serves to exalt Christ. This is the, this is the theme of my life, which is if God can save me and put someone like me in ministry, boy, that's good news for you. So... Our Savior rescues all of us, and your minister was as lost and sad as anyone looking for meaning and purpose in life apart from his creator. He's got great news for you, too. If you're as sad and lonely and, and worked up about your badness or whatever as I was, then, you know, Jesus is your guy. Uh, second reason I would share is because it is instructive of today's passage of what the Apostle Paul is doing in response to his critics in Corinth who were continuously blowing their own horns, bragging about who they were and why God should be grateful to have them on his team. And then finally, my teenage misuse of my words, my insecurities, talking about others, spreading bad news about others, would give us a platform to talk about integrity, which is the substantive theme of today's passage in 2 Corinthians. Now you might ask, how does integrity factor into all of this? Well, by looking at and speaking honestly about why we do such things with our tongue, for most of us, this will be an exercise in self-evaluation. For a lot of us, the look down into the abyss of our sinful nature or into our behavior that is embarrassing is painful. And yet, when we fail to look deeply at the why of what we do, we miss out on an important directive that would help us to recognize how some of those things can begin to heal in our lives. Tim Keller calls it the sin behind the sin. You got a little guy who just likes to gossip about other people and say crud about other people and make other people look bad. Most of us, if we counseled a middle school student who said, everybody's making fun of me, or this person's tearing me down, we would say to them, and I'm almost in unison, I gather, they tear you down because it makes them feel better about themselves. Because they feel badly about themselves. You're up here, they have to rip you down so that they don't feel so low. And so if you don't take a look at the why, you never recognize there's a real problem here. I, in my particular case, I don't like myself very much. I don't like who God made me to be very much. I don't feel very confident. I don't feel very loved. This is the real felt need at the heart of why people lie. 
of why people deceive, of why people exaggerate. Paul, the apostle who wrote the letter to the second Corinthians that we are studying for 2015. So if you ever thought to yourself, you know, I really like to focus on one particular book for a year and just like the end of that year, own it. This is your opportunity. It's January still. We're, we're going to relatively quickly have a, a follow-up blog that I'll post on Mondays on our PRISM blog, which is up on our website. We'll simply call it Monday's Leftovers. And, and, and then it'll be a directive to what we're going to read next week and some thoughts to prepare our hearts for the message each week. Plus, in our community groups, we kind of hash out the previous Sunday's sermons. So there is an opportunity for you on a personal level, on a church level, on a community group level to really sort of embrace and dig in to what the scriptures have to teach us. And in particular, the Apostle Paul is, is addressing a group of people that he has had some tension with. He has had some relational discord. That would be putting it rather mildly. But it is his personal depth of understanding about just how right, just how okay, is in theological terms we call it justified, it is Paul's personal sense that because he is safe in Christ, that he is able to take what is both a self-effacing and yet a bold look at who he is. He is able to do a variety of things in this text, and it enables him to have integrity throughout the course of his life, something that he can actually boast about, because this is an integrity that is produced only because he's safe and secure in Christ. He's able to tell the truth. He's able to remember that he told the truth. And anybody who has been a teenager lying to their parents or somebody else for that matter knows that the lies start to snowball. And if you tell a lie, then you gotta tell a lie to cover up the lie. And then the next thing you know, you've got this gargantuan lie. And the reason Paul could have such confidence in his integrity is because he encountered Jesus at a place in his life and said, this is who I am. This is who he saved. This is who he rescued. This is where I'm broken. This is where I'm wounded. And he never had to BS. He never had to cover it up. He never had to put any pretense on. And so what happened was he could look back and go, of course I didn't. You guys couldn't tell me something about myself that I haven't already unloaded. You guys know everything there's to know. I know I didn't lie. I'm letting it all hang out. And it is his integrity that gives him strength at this particular juncture where he's dealing with something very specific with the Corinthian people. So I'm going to take a look at integrity from two different places today in our text. The first is this. This is the first thing I'd like to share with you. Genuine integrity mandates humility. Let me read the first verse. This is verse 12 of chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. The enemies of the apostle Paul were trying to submarine his work amongst the Christians in Corinth. Now, in particular, Paul had had to, on at least two previous occasions, issue sharp rebukes to these people. Now, these are people that were getting drunk during communion, and a group of people that were kind of laughing off the idea that one of the people, apparently a leader in their church, was having an affair with his stepmother, and they all kind of like got a, got a hoot out of it. 
And so Paul says, whoa, this cannot happen and has to deal with them so strongly that there was an occasion for him to write, and he will later in this letter, I wasn't even going to make a second visit to you all because I was just afraid you guys were going to take it the wrong way. And what happens is, is oftentimes, and if you've had teenagers, um, you know what I'm talking about. If you're about to have teenagers, buckle up, that you're going to tell them something, and they're not going to like hearing it, all right? And then they're going to take it out on you and blame you for the problem. Now, this happens all through life. All of us know that if sometimes people who have to hear hard truth about themselves, they fight tooth and nail. Have you ever watched this show, Intervention? What a depressing show. And the reason is because just like me, people never go when their friends come around them and go, listen, Chuck, we think you have a drug problem. They never go, thanks for gathering. I know you guys care so much about me. And I'm really glad that you took the time out of your life to really intervene. They're just ticked. I mean, and and I understand that because like, I don't want to hear this. I do not want to hear this. It's the same nature when the Corinthians are told, listen, you guys can't do this. This isn't okay with Jesus. It isn't okay with him for you all to conduct yourselves just like your Corinthian neighbors and then yet call yourselves Christians. It isn't okay. Well, at that very moment, a group of opportunistic so-called Christian leaders come in and go, you know what? He thinks a lot of himself, this Paul. You know, he's really not all that great a speaker. You know, Paul... I think there's some things that, you know, are really bad. Did he really stick around very long? I mean, who is he? He blows into Corinth. He's from Tarsus. He's a Jew. What does he really know? They take the opportunity to impugn his character. Paul walks into this particular situation, and these so-called leaders begin to draw the hearts of people away by slandering Paul. They seize an opportunity to listen to the complaints of a group who had been disciplined And they use the classic ad hominem defense. We don't have to acknowledge what he's saying. Let's just attack him. Let's not address the issues that are substantive in our heart. Let's not look beyond the outside and to the real depth of problem. Now, the criticisms of Paul are mentioned elsewhere in the book. We'll get to them as we go. But you can infer them right away by how Paul defends himself Uh, in one way, the, the, the criticism of him is behavioral. And in particular, his lack of impressive speech. He just doesn't look like a champion leader. And then also his decision-making. So you see Paul saying, you know, I don't make decisions like the Corinthians make decisions. I, I make decisions based on the grace and the wisdom of God. This is a response that is an appeal to his integrity And it's an integrity that is only possible if a person has a genuine encounter with the gospel, an experience with Jesus that would free them to admit their need for grace in everything they do. It's a freedom that says, I'm broken and I can humble myself without fear that you're going to judge me. You can't tell me anything about me that God hadn't already told me I'm forgiven for. It's an honesty and a humility that only comes when somebody is a genuine believer. Integrity mandates that kind of humility. Now, in the text, Paul says, our boast is this. Let me make sure you understand. Paul isn't boasting. He's instead being a bit snarky about the language his opponents are using. So he basically, he's adopting it. And he's he's boasting about things that no one in their right mind would boast about unless they're safe in Christ. Uh, Paul gets dragged into this discussion with these braggers and Paul says, 
Yeah, I boast. Let me boast about how broken I am, about how I was a killer of Christians. How about that? I'm the chief of sinners. Let me boast about how desperately I need Christ. See, Paul would boast about anything that would put the intention on Jesus instead of him. His opponents were doing, the other, other, were doing otherwise. They were saying, look at my resume. Look at my things. Look at me. And Paul's saying, you can look at me, but let me tell you what you need to see about me so that you'll go, how in the world did you get to be the apostle Paul? Aren't you Saul of Tarsus, that awful, sinful guy who went around killing Christians? See, Paul is confident. His humility is born, his integrity is born of his humility. Now, in modern terms, let me see if I can't put a 21st century postmodern American spin on this. Someone might say, Orthodox Christians like me are judgmental. This is often uh, an accusation made of people who would call themselves evangelical Christians or Bible-believing Christians or Christ followers in general. To this, I would respond, yes, I am so awful and deserving of condemnation that Jesus had to die in my place. Yes, I judge myself to be so sinful as to deserve death, and so Jesus had to be my substitute. Yes, I judge myself to be the worst of sinners and the most undeserving and broken minister on the planet. You are right. I am judgmental. This is what Paul is saying. He's, he's turning it. He's saying, you're boasting, and you're saying, I'm going to boast in only Christ. That's it. Because I don't want you walking out of here going, that Paul, he's got some serious chops. That Paul's an impressive guy. The reason God has called us to plant a community of church, a church and more campuses of churches in our area is so that believers can quit pretending that they are more than they are. That we can embrace the reality of who we are because it's only there, only in that place where we go, we are safe in Christ, that we can actually start addressing the reality. And some of those realities are deep within us. They're painful realities that have affected our relationships negatively. My point in all this is, The only way a person can have integrity is to tell the truth. And the only way to tell the truth is to be absent of pride. Because all such pretense is an attempt to get others to recognize us instead of the God who created us. Jeremiah wrote this in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. This is one of those times where you have to perk up. Because Jeremiah is saying he actually heard God say this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. When you boast about his goodness and yours not so much, it delights God. Say, I'm looking for a way to bring pleasure to the heart of the Almighty. Brag about his grace. Brag about his love. Brag about his justice and righteousness in the earth. Uh, When I was much younger, I, I obviously had the schedule of a much younger person. Now I go to bed at a ridiculously early hour that I actually can't believe that at 9.30 I'm in bed. Uh, that, nothing dates you more than the time of 
day you go to sleep. You know, it used to be that nothing really great happened until like 10 o'clock. And now it's really great that I'm sleeping at 10 o'clock. So it's, it's, the world has substantially changed for me as I approach my half century mark this coming June. But I used to watch a lot of late night television. And there's two things you can tell about the way they program TV. Late night TV and middle of the day TV are for people that don't have work. All right. If you don't work, then late night TV and midday TV are for you. And so you get a lot of self-help, you get a lot of QVC, you get a lot of, a lot of stuff that people are, that are desperate, you know, the trucking company that you can go to work for, a lot of that kind of infomercial happens in the middle of the night. All of that stuff, like online colleges, boy, those colleges come out at night. You know, it's like, hey, you want to get a job? Come to our college. I mean, that's what happens at 1 a.m. At 1 a.m. is when you'll hear Tony Robbins and the rest of the self-help people telling you how they cleaned dishes in their bathtub once and that made them stand up and take responsibility for their life. And the entirety of that entire enterprise, that whole genre of thinking is you can do this. You have this strength within you. You have this capacity One of the greatest disservices you can do to your children, to anybody in life, is to tell them this. You can do anything you can put your mind to. I watched all of you walk in today, and I want all of you to know there's not a single one of you that could play in the NBA if you wanted to. (laughs) Now, I know that's raw truth for fast times, friends, but none of you are tall enough, and at this stage of the game, it's too late. It is too late for most of us, regardless of how much discipline and hard work you'd put in. It's not going to happen. And it's not loving for me to go, you can do anything you put your mind to. That's just not true. I know for a fact that there are a variety of things that I was not gifted to do, a variety of things that I'm not capable of doing, a variety of things I don't have the time to do, or other responsibilities have prevented me from doing. So when I hear like self-help people, I go, there's some great things I can learn from them. In fact, I, I made some reference to this like two or three years ago when our church was really small. If you think it's small now, you should have seen it three years ago. Uh, uh, and somebody got so mad at me, they never came back. I love Tony Robbins. And they were like, I wasn't trying to insult Tony. I'm just saying, I believe it's all by the grace of God. I believe you have the ability to pick yourself up off the couch and dial 1-800-GET-ME-A-JOB is the grace of God working in us. All of it is about the glory of Christ. And some of our self-help, I can do it, is designed to make us look good. See, our whole culture is about you can do this and then you can look back and tell all the little peons who wish they had what you had how to do it. And that will make you feel better about yourself. This is why so many of us, and I include myself in this group, won't you join me, who from time to time go, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'll tell you the plan. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it makes us feel like we're the masters of our domain. You know, we're the the masters of our fate. We're the captains of our soul. Invictus, we are really those people. Makes us feel good about who we are. The scriptures say that type of thinking is anti-Christ-like. It's the opposite of how Jesus would have us be, which is recognizing that all that we have is from God. This is why the apostle James, who was Jesus's brother, could have written this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your, in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. See, if you're going to have integrity, especially as a Christian, you're going to have to be able to face the painful realities of your limitations, of your brokenness, of the struggle with sin in your life. See, because if you get asked point blank, is this a problem for you and you lie about it, that should tell you I'm not capable of telling somebody the truth. I'm ashamed. And, and all of that shame doesn't come from God. Jesus wants to liberate you from that. He doesn't necessarily want you to continue getting drunk during communion as the Corinthians were doing. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he doesn't want you to do that. But he doesn't want you to pretend that it's not happening. He wants you to be able to say, okay, I have been made right with God. And that means that I can be honest about what's really going on in my life. I don't have to fear having integrity. It requires humility because you have to be willing to admit the worst parts of yourself. You have to be able to say, I'm going to experience God in such a profound way that when he tells me, listen, you've got to cough it up about the struggle you're having in your marriage to your friends who you trust. I'm not just saying walk out on the street and saying, how you doing? Can I tell you about my bad marriage? You have to actually have some people around you. But even in that context, are you willing to say, this is what's real in my life. And if you judge me too bad, I don't need your assessment. I have experienced God in such a profound way. I've experienced the grace of God in such a profound way that I can let it all hang out. How could what you think about me change the way God thinks about me? It couldn't. And I have to learn and grow in that and embrace that. And that humility is what mandates and produces integrity. Genuine integrity mandates humility. The second thought I'll have for you today is this. Gospel integrity manifests honesty. It may seem self-evident, but let me tell you where we're going. Let's begin by reading verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast in you. One of the interesting things about the 12th verse of this passage is in, in the English Standard Version and a variety of other versions of the New Testament, it's translated with, um, it's translated that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. In the NIV, it says with integrity and godly sincerity. In the Revised Standard Version, it says with frankness and godly sincerity. And the bottom line for all that is they were just being honest. They were just being honest. There was no agendas, no hidden purposes. And I would say today, you need to beware of people who have hidden agendas because they live their life saying one thing, but clearly intending another. And it indicates something. It indicates that they don't know the gospel deeply in their life. See, Paul's commitment was to authenticity, which meant he wouldn't attempt to make himself look good at the expense of being honest. He appealed to them and said that he never attempted to make more of himself than he did. He was brutally honest with them and with himself and about himself. I recently had an interaction with a group of so-called Christian leaders 
who didn't have the capacity to tell the truth as they debated their, the future of their very ministry. They were supposed to be the most mature leaders in a church, and yet simultaneously they had all these different agendas that were hidden. They were divided into factions, and there was a supreme level of dishonesty. Ministry and churches can be a hotbed for this type of exaggeration. And, and this is really probably one of the other great sins of my young life, and hopefully it's worked its way out over the last three decades or so of being a Christian, is a compulsion to exaggerate. You know, just a little bit of stretch to what you're saying to make yourself look a little better. Pad your resume this much. Do this much exaggerating of whatever it is that you had that you thought, if I don't tell them it looks like this, if I don't tell them my business is more successful or I don't rearrange the way I word this so that they'll think more highly of me, they'll think less of me. All those things help should point, there's something in me that is longing to be told I'm valuable and I'm having to exaggerate in order to make that happen and it isn't working and it isn't helping. Church is horrible in this regard. I can tell you as a minister of 20 years, that we call them evangelistic numbers. Those are the numbers where people start asking, how many people go to your church? And you go, 153. You know, you, you just kind of stretch it. Because, you know, if you're sitting around with a bunch of ministers at conferences, which I hate going to, by the way, because of this very thing, people just, they, it's like a big you know, look, who's got the biggest church contest? And so what ends up happening is, is people end up stretching those things. How many people have been baptized in your church? Well, for a lot of Baptist guys, these numbers get really stretched because they rebaptize all the Presbyterians and count it as if it was like a first-time conversion. Look at all these lost souls we brought into the kingdom. And it's like 14 PCA kids, Presbyterian Church in America kids who were covenant baptized and have been Christians for a decade. And, and then they count it. You know, uh, there are churches and pastors who exaggerate what's going on in their ministry and they fail to see that deep down inside it's because they have a longing that they're trying to fulfill by doing that. And we have to beware of people who see the church as a means to an end. Old school song from the Temptations talked about Papa being a rolling stone and, and about how he did storefront preaching on the side just to lie to people and get money. Cher sang about it in her song, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves. Once again, in addition to the time I go to bed, the songs that I choose to demonstrate in a, in a sermon will date me. However, I gotta tell you, it's not just ministers that, are, that fail to this in a church context Members of the congregation attempt to use the church to grow their business network. They are not that busy in life, so they become church busybodies under the guise of loving the church so much. I just love the church. I just have to be involved in every committee, and I have to run everything. You know, it's like, really? Is that what you're going to tell us? You are wealthy, and you're attempting to use your wealth to manipulate because you just like to. It makes you feel important. You can't face that. This is the painful reality. Many sacrifice their integrity, ironically, because they want to look good. I mean, think of that. You sacrifice your integrity because you want to look moral. You want to look good. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. You, by virtue of lying, you have made yourself a not good person. 
So it's an endless cycle unless you can break free of it. We lie because we fear rejection for who we are or who we are not. Integrity is a gospel comprehension indicator. Those who lie to make themselves look good demonstrate a void in their soul regarding a healthy view of who God made them to be and of how much God loves them. We deceive because we want something, but we don't want to be discovered to have wanted it. We are embarrassed by our true, often sinful motives, so we manipulate and tell half-truths in order to get our way and not look bad. At least we think so until, well, until we're found out to be full of it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we'll get to it in a couple of months, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded way. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The application for us as people of God in the 21st century, in a small community of believers, in a town this size, in a metropolitan area of enormous, enormous size, the application is for us to reflect on our level of honesty with each other. To the degree we're free in the gospel, we'll risk looking bad to express our true feelings. That's why most of us are on our worst behavior at home. We imagine that we are secure in that environment to express our feelings without worry or judgment or or rejection. The problem is, we do so at home and often alienate the people we love most and possibly do great damage to those relationships. But deep down inside, there's something about us that wants to just let it go. We want to quit pretending. There is a biblical and Christ-like way to proceed in life, and we see it in John's prologue to his gospel. In John 1, you can read about it. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And our comfort level with how gracious he's been to us will cause us to be, A, honest in how we really feel and what we really want, and B, gracious in how we communicate with others, recognizing that God has been extraordinarily kind and patient with us as he wants to be with others. But the starting point is you and I actually knowing that down deep inside, beyond the surface theological affirmations to is my behavior, is my integrity pointing to something that, that more deeply in my soul is disturbed because I, I don't feel, I don't have that which I would attempt to get by being deceptive. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. We are part of the same family. If you are a believer here today, if you say, I'm a Christian, there's, there's a baseline experience in this lifetime that Jesus wants you and I to have. And it will be something that we foster and develop and grow into, which is to say, I understand what Jesus did for me in such a way that I am liberated in my soul to quit pretending that I'm more than I am with you. Can you say that? Some days I can, some days I can't and you know how I can tell when I can't when I start hearing half-truths come out of my mouth when I start hearing exaggeration of fact become something that's a part of my life 
when I start exaggerating or bragging about something that God's doing in my life as if it was me doing it in my life. When I start harboring thoughts of great pride in my life, Paul is dealing with a group of people who have seized an opportunity that he afforded them by disciplining in love a group of Christians. And then these shysters come in, these, these deceivers come in, and they go, you know what? This Paul guy's terrible. We're impressive. We're important. Look at what God's doing in us. Look at us, look at us, look at us. Paul's saying, I'm appealing to you folks. I'm just the same guy I was the first time I saw you. I told you the truth. And Paul is in effect saying to the Corinthians, yes, I dropped some powerful and painful truth bombs on you. But at least it was the truth. I wasn't trying to sneak in the back door to manipulate in some secret way like others. At least what you saw is what you get. Now, this is going to be the moment in a sermon where I would encourage you not to check out. And that is what to do now. Now, there are churches you could go to, and I'm not pointing the finger or even claiming that prism is this, this, this wonderful oasis in the sea of a bunch of whatever. I'm telling you this. I've been to churches. I've actually pastored at churches and been the culprit in this, uh, in this occasion, which is to say, you stop right here and you go, then just stop lying. Let's pray. And then like everybody goes home feeling like crud about themselves. It's like, oh, okay, I'll just stop lying. I'll try to stop lying. Well, when am I lying? And then you become this kind of a neurotic person that's horrible to be with all the time. <laughs> Don't be that person. The starting point in all of this is not to determine to just stop being dishonest or exaggerating. The first step is to admit that we need Jesus to fill this space in our life that we reserve for our need for the approval of others or the agenda that we've set that will make us feel as if we've truly made something of ourselves. That's the first place. We have to recognize the sin behind the sin. The sin is lying, but there's something deeper which says, I'm lying because my heart is longing for something. I'm scheming to get something. I'm scheming to feel a certain way. And it's really a treasure when you get to admit, I've got something in my life that's not honest because it can point you to a place where God can do real healing in your heart if you'll let it. And the gospel frees us to do that. The gospel frees us to say, yep, that was not true. Why did I do that? If we don't seek to fill our hearts with the love our God has for us, we'll be unable to face those realities. And we'll inevitably try to fill those same hearts with the stuff of earth that isn't even capable of satisfying our souls. I have to tell you a story. Yesterday we had a great work day and I'm not particularly mechanically inclined. I, I like to do lots of stuff and I like to learn, but Jonathan Nee, who has been, who's uh, the multi-talented gentleman here in our church, who's actually a former painting contractor, he's the one that's painted the front part of our church and we'll get to the rest of it in the weeks ahead, uh, was working on a pressure washer and he said he needed some oil for the machine. And so I grabbed out of this stock of stuff we found here at the church, uh, this transmission fluid. And I said, will this work? And uh, he said, no. And he kind of sort of had that look, in his, <laughs> that look on his face like, oh, you poor minister. How many engines have you actually destroyed in the course of your lifetime thinking you knew something? The reality is, is that that engine wasn't made to run on anything but oil in that particular way. 
You can't just dump something else in there and expect it not to create a problem for yourselves. God made you and I for integrity and honesty. He made us so that he could come and meet certain areas of our lives. And we can try to fill them with other crud, but it's going to create problems. Eventually, it's going to demonstrate that that was the wrong material to dump into that particular situation. He wants to fill that void in your heart. Let us pray today that he would do so for us. Father, we're humbled. We're thankful. You love us and you desire to fill those places in our heart with you, not with the money we have or the security we could try to find in this world or through the dishonesty of posturing ourselves as impressive. But that experience with you has to be real or we are going to continue to do silly things like exaggerate the truth. We are going to continue to hide our places of brokenness for fear of being judged. We need to know you have... You don't continue.